Um, my name is Emily Lamb. Uh, if you have not tuned in before, uh, this is a weekly political talk show where I take you through some of the biggest political events of the week, or in this situation, the biggest political events of the past four months. Um, so in this episode, we have a lot to talk about. My last episode I went and I checked was published on May 18th, uh, and it is currently September 21st. And if you've even been, been paying like a passing attention to politics uh, over the past couple months, you'll know that we do have a lot to cover today. So we're going to see if I can make it through all of the major stories in the next 55 minutes. I'm certainly going to try, um, but we'll see how it goes. I always do surprise myself with how much I'm able, actually able to fit into this time frame. So we'll see how it goes. Um, everything's also very interconnected. I might jump around a bit. This isn't going to be like my traditional kind of episode where I kind of have three chunks. We're kind of going to just go through this kind of narratively. But um, the main things we're going to be discussing today. One, the midterms. Um, primaries are officially over. Woohoo. Um, the stage is set now for the general election in November. What the heck is happening? As we know, a lot has changed in terms of the midterm landscape um, from back in May to today. So we're going to talk about that. Number two, we are going to talk about what Congress has been up to. They've had a pretty eventful summer as well. They've passed through a lot of pretty important legislation. We're going to get into that. Um, and then number three, we're going to be talking about um, Joe Biden's eventful August. Um, what has happened? What is he planning? Dark Brandon is rising, and we are going to get into that. Um, and then at the end of the episode, we're going to do, if we have time, a brief look ahead um, to the next couple of months of politics and the show. And then, of course, we have our crazy moments in politics from the summer. It was really hard to choose um, just one. So there's going to be two, maybe three TBD once we get to the end of the show. But with all that being said, let's just jump right into it because we do have a lot to cover today. So first and foremost, the midterms. When we left off in May, it was not looking great for the Democrats. It was very much a situation of Dems in disarray. We were kind of sitting on the cusp of primary season back in May, not looking good for Democrats. People were really, the conversation wasn't really about turning things around necessarily, but it was much more about how to stop the bleeding. We knew that the Democrats were going to lose X number of seats. The question for the Democrats, at least it appeared in May, was how can we limit the number of seats we're losing um, as opposed to potentially gaining seats or not losing any seats at all. Um, and frankly, back in May, the Republicans had everything going for them. Um, they had high, really high gas prices, inflation kind of running rampant, general chaos um, in government, plus um, with everything happening in Ukraine, there was just like a lot that was going against the kind of the, the Democratic incumbents across the board. Um, and then historically also, we talked about this a lot last semester, historically, um, the party that controls the House, the Senate and the presidency in that midterm election following them taking power, lose a ton of seats, like absolutely get demolished, wiped out. It's not good. And if you look at those historical trends, that's very clear. And so they have that historical advantage. They had kind of all of these different external economic social factors working for them. And then there was also just like generally positive reporting around their ability to kind of take control of the government. Um, 
you know, I think specific, like, when, it's, it's a little bit of, like, a feedback loop, like, when journalists are like, oh, yeah, for sure they're going to win, and then kind of you see different members of Republican leadership going, oh, yeah, we're going to win, here's our priorities, here's what our strategy is going to be, kind of makes voters say, oh, okay, well, whatever, if we know that they're going to win, then I'm not going to go out and vote, and I'm not going to get engaged, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. So that's, like, an important feedback loop that was created around the reporting around midterms and primaries, although... As we know, things have changed. So where we stand now is very different from where we were standing a couple months ago. So now, kind of in a general overview of the landscape, the Republicans are still favored to take the House, but not nearly as much as it was thought back in the spring. We're like, back in the spring, it was thought that they were going to take like 30 seats or something crazy. Um, that is just no longer the case. And it's it's much more you know, it's more considered that they're probably going to still win, but maybe five seats, 10 seats, like nothing crazy at all. Um, and they actually, they are um, more favored to win the Senate or at least keep it 50-50. We're getting into that a little bit as well. Um, but then again, back to the House, we'll talk about this more later. Um, but there is very, there is a lot of why well, part of why the tide has changed a little bit in that sense is that the Democrats did a lot of very strategic campaigning um, and they basically helped to get kind of spoiler candidates nominated. And we're going to talk about that as well. Um, and then kind of the, the battle with the House, as always, is especially with primary season, is those kind of the battles between those different factions um, within both parties. So we talked about this a lot in the past, but there's this kind of... Um, evergreen battle in the um, Democratic Party with the moderate and more kind of extreme sides of the party and kind of figuring out which is a more discernible or which is like which is the more viable solution for actually winning elections and then also kind of tangentially and separately um, which is the better solution for actually governing because I think though those two answers might be different things but regardless. Um, and then within the, the, the Republican Party, there's the Trump faction and the anti-Trump faction. Um, and of course, like this was the first time, well, yeah, I guess uh, the first time really where, again, Trump Trump isn't the top, top of the ticket anymore. We have all of these Republican candidates who are either like outspoken about being against Donald Trump um, or for some other reason, either voted for impeachment or something else. All of those candidates are now on the ballot. Um, and so it's kind of a big, and then there's also the matter of Donald Trump addressing, um, or endorsing certain candidates. Yeah, well, it's, I'm sorry, I'm using the wrong words here, but Donald Trump did a lot of endorsements this cycle. Um, and so whether or not that has been actually successful is, is a really important thing for a lot of politicos to consider. Um, there's definitely going to be some like scientific, like political science research around this topic, because it's really difficult to get a feel for whether or not it actually helped or hurt just based off of a myriad of different factors. It's hard to isolate um, the impact of the Donald Trump endorsement, but it was definitely a factor throughout this primary season, is that there was a set of Republican candidates who were basically blessed by Donald Trump um, and whether or not they, they end up winning their primaries and then ultimately winning their general elections is kind of something that is still up in the air, but it's still pretty important. And again, there's no discernible answer kind of across the board as to which factions are superior. It seems to me, and I don't really have the numbers to back this up, it seems to me that the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party seems to be more successful in their primaries. Um, that's 
the indication that I'm getting, but again, I, I do not have numbers <laughs> to back this up. That probably would have been helpful, but I didn't do it. So here we are. Um, and then again, it's, it's, it's not clear whether or not that Trump endorsement or that kind of being associated with Donald Trump is really helpful. Um, so that's kind of where we are in terms of the House. Primaries happened. There was chaos, as always. There was, in, you know, partisan, internal infighting. Candidates won. Here we are kind of at the finish line. Um, and then again, kind of going back to the Senate, the Democrats are slightly favored to keep the Senate or at least keep it 50 50, um, which I, I personally think is the most feasible option. And as like a really brief side note, I got a Snapchat memory from two years ago, like this week, where I was where I was like just like looking forlornly off into the distance. And the caption was like thinking about a 50 50 Senate. And if you'll remember, September two two years ago today was before the 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 2020 election. Boy, boy, did I not know how crazy this was going to get. Um, the 50-50 Senate is just horrifying and so stressful. But anyway, um, so it was thought for a while that the Democrats or the Republicans had a pretty strong chance of taking back the Senate. There's a lot of very flippy seats that are up for re-election right now. Um, but ultimately... The Republicans in, uh, chose a lot of really terrible, truly horrible Republican candidates. Um, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. There's probably four or five. Um, what's his name? Mm, Vance in Ohio. Just across the board in those very flippy marginal seats, they chose very not electable candidates. Um and so these races that should have been very easy for the Republicans are now a lot more complicated um, because the people that they nominated, again, are very poor candidate quality. Um, and in flippy seats, candidate quality matters a lot more than a race that's where the district is D plus 20. The Democratic candidate in that situation doesn't have to be that great. He just has to be a Democrat. Um, but in situations like Pennsylvania, that is a swing state that does go back and forth a lot. Um, that has kind of a, a, a divided Senate there. <laughs> we do know that that candidate quality matters a lot. And Dr. Oz has not been great. And this is not something we're going to talk about in our crazy political stories. But if you were paying attention to the Dr. Oz crudite story, if you put that on, if that was on your 2022 midterms bingo board, Dr. Oz gets in trouble for talking about crudite. Like, I have no idea. Politics is so strange and weird. Anyway, um, so anyway, candidate quality matters a lot. They don't have a good set of candidates. Part of it was because of Democratic spoiling, which you're going to get into, but um, a lot of it also was just that they did not put good candidates forward and that the Republican Party supported a lot of really bad candidates. Um, so that's kind of why we are a little bit in the situation we are now in the Senate. Um, very good candidates on the Democratic side, really bad candidates on the Republican side. It just automatically changes changes the course there a little bit. Um, so I would not be surprised if we, I say we, again, I probably should have said this at the top for those who haven't listened before, but I, uh, this, you know, this is not a news show. This is a talk show. So I am saying my opinion. And my opinion is that I do want the Democrats to win, and I'm not afraid of saying that. So just so you know, you know, listen with a grain of salt. 
if you have a different opinion for me, that's all good, but I am speaking from my own personal perspective. So regardless, I would not be surprised if we slash the Democrats kept Georgia, kept Pennsylvania, kept Arizona, um, maybe even flipped Ohio. That'd be crazy, but I wouldn't be like hugely surprised. So like there's there's a pretty good set of situations happening right now in the Senate. Um, it's a little bit safer right now for the Democrats than the House is. Um, but ultimately, kind of on a macro level, um, I saw somebody say online that this was a like a dual wave election. So we already kind of had talked about the Republican wave from the right, where they're basically saying, okay, um, we have all of these economic factors working for us. We have this historical advantage from previous election cycles, all this going on. It's going to be a huge advantage for the Republicans in the midterms. Um, but now we have this new kind of democratic blue wave on the left. And we have these Democrats really winning on social issues, talking about abortion, talking about protecting democracy, all these different things. And they are winning hardcore on those issues. So now we have that second wave coming from the left and we have the two waves crashing together. Um, and the winner basically is whichever the stronger wave is. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty important thing. And again, we, we've talked, you know, we, we talk a lot about in politics of like what the memory of a voter is. How much are they actually remembering about what happened in the past? Um, and kind of what's happening right now is that there's, as opposed to the economic issues that were once at the forefront, now we have a lot more social issues that are at the forefront. Um, so the, the row reversal that happened back in the spring, that was a major major thing for the for the Democrats because they really were able to take advantage of that and talk about how significant these elections are and how important it is to actually vote in these races. Um, so the, a lot of these previously uninterested Democratic voters, a lot of the ones who are looking at the news and saying, oh, well, the Republicans are going to win anyway. There's nothing that I personally can do to stop that from happening, are now a lot more interested in going out and voting which is probably why a lot of the tide has been changing as well. And then there's also a lot of middle-of-the-road voters who might have gone Republican this time around um, are now undecided or even leaning Democratic because of things like abortion. Because, you know, there's a you know there's a pretty solid set of kind of uh, reports, basically, that are saying, like, there's a lot of people who don't individually support abortion who are really concerned about what the impact of Roe v. Wade being overturned is kind of on a more macro level. Outside of just talking about abortion, there's all of these different things that it could potentially affect. Um, and they're really concerned about that. And so now they are more interested in kind of what that what those Democrats are saying. And in states like, again, Pennsylvania, where you have in the Senate a really bad Republican candidate, and now all of these things that are making this election a little bit more important it's going to drive turnout for the Democrats, and it's going to really influence a lot of those undecideds to move over basically to the Democratic camp. Um, and importantly, like just because I'm saying that the Democrats have made a lot of um, kind of upwards mobility in the past few months um, does not mean that it's like set in stone that they're going to do super great, like whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, we know polling is never super reliable anymore. There's all of these issues with, with kind of how we're measuring all these different polls. Um, a lot of people talk about, you know, national polls where like 
what is a national poll? National polls don't matter at all. Um, so, you know, a- anything that anything. Well, first of all, we have a long time before between now and November. And second of all, so many other things can happen between now and November um, that it really it's you know, we can't make super duper accurate predictions. But the thought is that the there's not going to be quite as much. <coughs> excuse me. There's not going to be quite as much bleeding as we thought there was going to be. Um, so now I'm going to move on to something I mentioned earlier on, but I definitely wanted to take some time to talk about, um, in terms of the midterms is like some controversial campaign tactics, um, that the Democrats have been using. This is kind of anecdotal more than anything else. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting to talk about just so that just kind of get the lay of the land with like where, like political discourse is at. I think that it's going to be important moving forward for, for this cycle and then future election cycles as well. Um, but basically, a lot of um, the like the D trip, which is the Democratic. Let's see if I can do this camp. The, the, let's see if I can do this. Acronym. It's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Coalition. I think that's right. Anyway, the D trip um, basically was funding. They used a lot of their money, or some of their money, I should say, to fund those like far right, super Trumpy candidates when they were running against a more moderate, more middle of the road, more potentially reasonable um, Republican candidate. So because because basically they thought, okay, well, if we endorse or if we if this middle of the road kind of super normal Republican wins the race, it's going to be a lot harder for our middle of the road embattled Democrat because every Democrat is embattled right now embattled Democratic candidate um, to win their race. So it's basically setting them up for an easier time down the line because it's a lot easier to run a race against someone who's crazy than someone who's normal. So basically, that's a strategy there. Um, So is it morally problematic? Like, probably. Free elections are an important thing, obviously. No one's denying that. Um, And so this kind of like election meddling is is it's probably morally bad, like whatever it is. I just, you know, and then the question becomes, well, should the Democrats stop doing it? Should we be fighting with them? Blah, blah, blah. In my opinion, I mean, Republicans have been very, very upset about this um, just because they do think that it's kind of violating their free elections, this, that, the other thing. I just don't think that the Republicans have been the most morally upstanding in terms of elections and electioneering in the past. So I'm not really sure, like, what ground they're standing on in order to kind of make these accusations. Like, they're right that election meddling is not the purest thing to do. It's not, it's not. No one's claiming that it is. Um, But they can't, I feel like the Republican camp is so upset about it, but they've done like all of the gerrymandering that they've done in the past. There's been so many things that they've done in the past. If we go back to 2000, (laughs) that changed the course of history. What would our world be like if 2000 went a different way? Um, I just think that there's kind of a, there's a different dynamic there. And I think the Republicans, I mean, the Republicans sit with a lot of hypocrisy. So that's regardless, whatever. Um, My concern, again, coming from my own (coughs) my own personal perspective, is that there's, there's, so there's two things. One don't waste your money on the other party, right? Like we already have like a, this limited pool of money, although the Democrats do have like a ton of money, but whatever. 
They have this limited pool of money, and we have all of these very, very marginal races across the board. Should we really be putting money into making ads for the Trump Republican in this random district, as opposed to putting the money into making ads for Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania, who's a very marginal candidate and is like one of the most vulnerable? Why aren't we putting money into him as opposed to trying to make the race easier for him down the line? Like, I'm just not sure what the, how like effective that strategy is, frankly. And then there's also the matter of, okay, great, we've, uh, we've uh, chosen this kind of far-right Republican candidate to win this race. Now let's say he wins in November. And now we have this far-right, election-denying, QAnon person in Congress for another two years. And the, the, the power of incumbency is so strong that he's going to be there forever now. He's never going to leave. Um, and I'm just not quite sure if it's worth it in those situations to risk potentially changing the balance of Congress forever in order to help these Democratic candidates have a slightly easier time in November. Um, so I think that that's concerning. There's also the matter of people do have free will. Like, because the Democrats are running an ad saying, oh, so-and-so is so-and-so. Um, people do have free will and they're able to make their own decisions. And the impact of um, ads is like notoriously not that big. Like it's just not that impactful of a thing. So, you know, if people weren't already planning on voting for these candidates, they wouldn't vote for these candidates. Have a little bit more respect for like the American people, I feel. But anyway, um, so again, I'm I'm more concerned about the the long term impacts of what this is going to do to Congress in the event that the they these candidates win in the general election more than I am about like the purity of electioneering in America because electioneering has not been pure in a very very long time, um, and it will never go back to being that 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 way. And frankly, like, uh, whatever, I'm kind of all for Democrats fighting fire with fire. Maybe that's a bad thing, and maybe I'll change my mind about that. But I'm just, you know, I think that the Democrats are very good at lying down and playing dead. Um, and I think that this is a, kind of a big step for them in just getting up and doing the work and trying to be a little bit more present in, in the elections and, and fighting back against a lot of the, the bad actions of the Republican Party in the past. And we saw that also a lot with um, redistricting this year is that they were like, all right, well, if the Republicans are going to gerrymander, we're going to gerrymander. We're going to gerrymander right back and we're going to do it better. They, <laughs> they didn't do it better, but they did try. Um, so I do think that that's like an important thing as well, that the, you know, the, um, the Democrats are trying to kind of fight fire with fire, which is, which is, I don't know, kind of big. Um, so that's that. That's another little anecdote. And now I'm going to talk about, very quickly, I'm going to talk about some kind of interesting races and tidbits from the midterms. So one, I don't have this on my notes, but I should say it, is that um, Madison Cawthorn lost his primary. I couldn't remember his name for a second. That was so bad. Out of sight, out of mind, baby. Um, 
Madison Cawthorn has is out of his district, so he's done. <clears throat> he's officially a lame duck because he did lose his primary challenge. We talk about Madison Cawthorn all the time. That's just an important thing uh, that he is one of those really extreme scary people that is gone now. Basically, the lesson there is don't say that members of your caucus are participating in cocaine orgies. Don't do it. Don't do it. Anyway. Um, so, second kind of important, interesting race. Um, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, uh, both like very strong, deep incumbents in New York City. Their districts were kind of redistricted into each other. So they were both running for the same seat. Um, and so this was a very important kind of battle for the Democrats to watch um, because it's really had a major impact on Democratic leadership. Um, and ultimately, Nadler did come out on top, meaning that there's now going to be an opening um, in the top spot for House Oversight, which is what Carolyn Maloney, I mean, she's been chairing, she's been in that committee or she's been chairing that committee for like a million years because um, they're both a million years old. So now we have this open spot. So A, not only do we have this like kind of important battle in terms of democratic seniority um, in New York, and we had one of those candidates come out on top, now we have this power vacuum within the caucus. Um, and traditionally that spot in House Oversight goes to um, somebody just purely based off of seniority, but there are a lot of different people who are running for that spot. Um, and so it could potentially be that they choose to um, basically give the spot to somebody who is younger, who can use that to kind of launch themselves into kind of more mainstream political stardom. Um, and so that could definitely change the dynamics within the caucus, because if they do, you know, promote somebody who's a little bit younger, um, that could really that could really elevate that Democrat and give them a lot more attention. Um, and that could be very significant for 2024 and beyond. You know, there's a lot of conversation about the strength of the Democratic bench. Um, and frankly, like, yeah, the bench is not that strong. Um, there aren't that many people who have that, like, national name recognition. Um, but elevating somebody who's younger to this high power uh, committee seat could definitely kind of help to move that stuff along. So that's just an interesting race to talk about. Um, Carolyn Maloney, goodbye. R.A.P. She's not dead. She's just lost her seat in Congress. But she's old, so she'll be fine. She'll take her house pension and she'll go travel. I don't know what they do. She'll go on speaking tours and make lots and lots of money. So she'll be fine. Um, other interesting race is Liz Cheney in Wyoming, the Wyoming at-large seat. Um, even going into the summer, we knew that Liz Cheney was not long for the world. Again, not the actual world, just the world of Congress. <laughs> um, so we knew that she was going to be gone, but now she's officially gone. Um, she got absolutely brutalized um, during her primary against Harriet Hagerman, who is now running as the um, Republican in that seat. Um, Interesting thing there, just a little tidbit, is that Liz Cheney actually this summer was campaigning um, by basically like sending mailers to the Democratic voters in Wyoming and saying, look, your Democratic candidate is not going to win. They're not even trying. Switch your registration to be a Republican so that you can vote in the primary and keep me safe. 
The issue with that is that there physically aren't enough Democrats in the state of Wyoming in order for that really to make a difference. But it was like it was like desperation hours um, for that campaign towards the end. They knew they were going to lose and they really did. It was like 60, 40. Like it was it was a blowout. It wasn't even close. Um, So obviously this is very significant for Congress in general, um, but probably not a huge indicator of where elections are trending in general. For Congress, of course, this means that we have one kind of moderate, no, she's not even that moderate, but whatever, more like a reasonable Republican who has now left the office. She was very high up in the Republican caucus, which means that there's now a vacuum within the caucus, vacuum within leadership. So we have a lot of different kind of pieces that fall when you take Liz Cheney out of the equation. Um, There's also the matter of like the January 6th commission. Like she was the um, like ranking member of the January 6th commission. So like, what does that mean for the future of that commission? Should the Democrats keep control of the house in 2022? Um, But again, in general, it's probably not a hugely good indicator of where elections are trending because Wyoming is such a steep, deep red state um, that, you know, like a a Trump apologist Republican is going to do a lot better in a state like Wyoming than a swing state, which is where those things really matter. We we and it's also kind of a matter of like it. This race is not changing the balance of Congress in any way. It just may be changing the intellectual basis of the Republican Party. Um, so there's like a lot of different layers. There's like that macro level and then you kind of get into the weeds a little bit with all of the different aspects of, of Liz Cheney's departure from Congress. So what's next for Liz is the next question. Um, she seems to be teasing a potential presidential run, um, which I don't I don't know. I don't know because it's, it's a question of, OK, will she be running as a spoiler for the Republicans? Like, will she split the Republican vote? And so Donald Trump, <coughs> excuse me, oh my gosh, so that Donald Trump doesn't win, or is he running, as, or is she running as a spoiler for the Democrats, kind of splitting the Democratic vote between Joe Biden and herself so that Donald Trump does win? And I think that that's like a calculus that she really needs to do in order to figure out whether or not she's actually going to run, because she does have a significant cross-aisle appeal, but not enough to like win as a third-party candidate. So she's either going to be spoiling for one group or the other. Um, And if she gambles and says, "Okay, I'm going to try to split the vote of the Republicans so that Joe Biden wins, then that's good strategically. But obviously she does not want Donald Trump to get another term. So if she does kind of gamble and then she ultimately splits the Democratic vote and Donald Trump does win, that's kind of the antithesis of everything that she's been working to do over the past several years. So that's just like a very interesting strategic thing for her to think about. Um, And hopefully she does do that thinking instead of just kind of trying to raise the profile of her of her national stardom. Um, But we'll see. I mean, we've got like a pretty long way to go until 2024, but not that long, frankly. Pretty much as soon as midterms are over, we're going to be right into presidential season. So that's horrifying. Um, And this also raises the question, again, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but raises the question of, is Donald Trump going to run again in 2024? Um, When are we going to find out? And what does that mean for the 2024 landscape? He's been hinting that he's going to be running again, but we really, we really truly don't know. And we don't know when we're going to find out. Um, Him 
endorsing so many candidates and being so involved with this midterm season. All signs point to he's running again, um, but I think it now it's just a matter of Republican leadership trying to make him stop. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, so next, really briefly kind of wrapping this long, long segments about midterms up. Um, what actually happened? We talked about this a little bit, but why are things now the way that they are? Why did things change so much for the Democrats? Number one, gas prices dropped where they were, you know, $5, whatever, over the summer. They're now kind of more settled in the four range. Um, this summer has seen me turning into my father where every single time I pass a gas station, I go, huh, 423. Huh. 375. Like, I just absolutely cannot stop myself from saying gas prices every single time I walk past a gas station. So that's kind of a horrifying little anecdote about my summer. Um, so that's important. Gas prices dropped, came, became less of a, a national story. Um, number two, um, abortion and social issues became a more central focus in economic issues. Um, that's just straight up what happened. It kind of took center stage rather than those economic issues. Gas prices are dropping. There are other things for journalists to write about. And so they started writing about those things where Democrats have a stronger control. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, there's also more for Democrats to campaign on. We're going to get into that in the next section. Um, and there's just, in general, a lot of actions that were taken by the Democrats in the House and in the executive branch. And so the tide was really just turning in favor of the Democrats. They're, they've stemmed the bleeding for now. But again, it's a very long way to go until November. So... That was a pretty long segment, um, but we covered a lot, a lot of very important stuff, a lot of important context. We are now going to move into kind of the legislative branch and what they have been up to this summer. They've had a busier summer than usual. Um, usually they kind of just take all of August off and they don't do much over the summer, but this summer they went, they went crazy, they went stupid. Um, so we've got kind of three major legislative wins that we are going to get into today the Inflation Reduction Act, the PACT Act, and the um, Safer Communities Act, which was the bipartisan gun control bill. So we're going to go through those one at a time. Um, so the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, as it is, as it is known, um, passed 5150 in the Senate. So that was uh, uh, Com Vice President Kamala Harris tie-breaking vote on that bill. Um, and that only passed after some, like, West Wing-style political maneuvering, which is something I love. If you were doing something politically savvy, if you were having secret meetings, I love it. I love it. I think it's great. I think it's fabulous. Um, so they did manage to get the bill through with all those kind of like secret meetings. Um, and this final bill, which was actually the, the reconciliation bill um, in the Senate, includes the creation of a 15% corporate minimum tax rate, prescription drug price reform, IRS tax enforcement adjustments, basically, um, an ACA subsidy extension, and then very importantly, um, energy security and climate change investments. So this was the biggest thing where they were really saying, oh, this is a climate change bill. This is a climate change bill. They do have a ton in that bill for climate change development. And actually, I'll link it somewhere when I post this somewhere. But Hank Green of the Vlog Brothers, 
did a really, really good video kind of talking about how important this bill is for the climate movement. Um, and obviously, like, I don't, again, I don't have time to get into every single detail, but if you are interested in kind of what this bill means for what this bill means for climate change and whether or not it's actually doing enough, uh, I will link that somewhere because it is a really, really helpful resource to kind of learn more about what this bill is doing. Um, and then the, the other important aspect of this bill is that it, it it does, it's not going to affect inflation. Um, and that was a, that was a big part of it, obviously. And then calling the, calling the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, that's just like, that's kind of some great political nonsense. Like whoever named that bill really does deserve a raise. I think someone said online that it was Manchin. Regardless, because now we got all these Republicans who are on the record voting against inflation reduction. That's, that's the best. I love that stuff. Anyway, but the, ultimately, um, the bill negotiations came down to conversations between Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. Um, there was kind of, it was on and off, these, these, these conversations. For a while, the conversation just completely stopped because they could not come to a decision specifically around those climate change pieces of, uh, pieces of the legislation. But ultimately, they were able to kind of come together and create this um, basically behind the scenes bill because they knew because because, again, with reconciliation, as we talked about last semester and the semester before, we're always talking about reconciliation. But reconciliation is a filibuster proof piece of legislation. So in order to get it through, all they need is 50 votes, um, which is really, really big. So they knew if the, the Democratic caucus knew, if we can all get together and agree on the text of this bill, we can we can shove this thing through. We can get it done. Um, and we don't need any kind of Republican consent in order to get it done. That's basically what they did. They went into their back rooms. They had those conversations. Um, and ultimately, they were able to kind of come together on the text of that bill. And once Manchin agreed, he was pretty a, pretty easily able to get cinema on board um, and kind of pull that Democratic caucus together, um, which is not an easy thing to do. So we love to see it. So um, kind of another important thing on that is that this bill, of course, is reconciliation, which is important. Um, but as with last year, we're going to be talking about the budget process forever and ever, and we're never going to stop talking about it. Um, reconciliation, of course, is only one part of the budget process. And we also have like the literal budget that we still need to uh, get through. And of course, the fiscal year ends in two weeks. <laughs> so we're almost certainly, probably, most definitely um, not going to get the rest of the federal funding package before the f end of the fiscal year. Um, so we're going to be talking about CRs, crazy, crazy CRs, because then Congress goes on recess for like all of October because it's election season. Um, so... We're going to be talking about the budget for a long time, all semester, probably after the election during the lame duck session is when we're going to really be getting back into it. Um, regardless, though, of the reconciliation, the budget process, this bill was a very big win for Democrats. Um, They're able to push through this very broadly popular policy package um, and kind of show tangible steps as their actions. They were actually able to get this piece of legislation through. They did it. Um, and then again, it's quite literally something for the congressional Dems to run on. 
they have something that they can point to and say, look at what we just did, literally just did a couple weeks ago. So that's really big. And again, they also do have 50 Republicans on the record voting no to reducing inflation, which was that big economic issue that the Republicans were using to drive their forward mobility um, throughout the past several, several months. So that's the IRA. We love to see it. Next is the PACT Act, which was kind of the other aspect of the IRA wheeling and dealing. So while... So the PACT Act is basically um, a bill that gives aid to veterans who are affected by burn pits. Um, So, you know, pretty like broadly popular bill, lots of bipartisan support, because if there's one thing that the federal government loves to do, it's talk about protecting the veterans. Whether or not they actually do it is a different story, but they do love to talk about it. Um, So again, this this was a very important piece of legislation. It was like pretty much definitely going to get through. And then it got held up because of um, kind of silly procedural votes um, that the Republicans were forcing through, which was, you know, ridiculous. They're playing games with the lives of veterans, but whatever. But we're going to have that all on the record. And we do have that all on the record. So whatever. Um, And so basically they were saying, unless you give up on reconciliation, we're not going to have a vote on the PACT Act. So... Schumer and Manchin were like, oh yeah, those those negotiations are over. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're definitely not talking about that anymore. And then they voted first on the PACT Act, they passed it, and then they immediately followed it up with a um, their agreed upon language for reconciliation, which again, they only needed 50 votes for in order to pass. So there was some political wheeling and dealing there. We love to see it. So again, this was a bipartisan piece of legislation. I think it passed like 85, 15, something like that. Um, But the Democrats, you know, really should be, and I think that they are, are pushing back on the fact that it's truly bipartisan because of how the Republicans held it up. Um, You know, there's, there's, there's pluses to saying, oh, look at this bipartisan piece of legislation. And then there's also benefits to saying, yeah, it's bipartisan, but did you see the political game that they were playing with the lives of veterans? I don't know. I think it's something that the Democrats should latch on to, but, you know, I'm not in charge. Um, and the Republicans did sell out the veterans for cheap political points, and I don't really personally see any honor in that. Um, will voters remember that by Election Day? TBD, but probably not. But anyway, that is the PACT Act. That is Bill number two. Bill number three is the bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was a gun safety bill. Um, So this was the bill that they wrote following the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which happened in late May. So like kind of right after the season wrapped up. Um, And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into the shooting and all of the horrible, horrible aspects of it um, and like the response and everything else. But suffice to say, everyone is like, okay, well, we need some we have all this momentum on gun control reform let's get something done, let's push something through. Um, And so ultimately they were able to get through the Safer Communities Act. There is a lot of controversies on it. Um, People argue that it really does not go as far as it should, um, which it probably doesn't, kind of doesn't do as much as as it can, as it should. Um, But it was still a pretty important piece of bipartisan legislation. They were able to get through really quickly because of all of the 
kind of attention and motivation they had because of the shooting in Uvalde and how truly horrifying um, those after effects were. So regardless of, of whether or not the bill did enough, the factions were all able to come together, kind of, again, pe- quickly pass this piece of legislation, um, which means we've got three big, important bills, two of which are noticeably bipartisan, um, all of them through Congress within the last several months, um, three big things for the Democrats to point to. So the Democrats, again, these are, and these were broad-reaching pieces of legislation that they address significant social and economic issues and has some real clear-cut um, accomplishments to point to. And this is, again, part of what I was talking about with <clears throat> how the tide has changed so much for the Democrats, is they have specific things that they can point to and say, look at what we did just now. Um, and again, like I, the, the on top of legislative success, um, voters have, yeah, separately, tang- separately, point one, point two. Um, voters have also embraced kind of the out of sight, out of mind effect in terms of gas prices. Um, voters have a very short attention span. They have a very short memory. Um, so I asked, I think it was all the way back in the fall. I asked, you know, how much are we still going to be talking about like Afghanistan in the in 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 the midterm season like here we are we're not talking about it at all we're hardly talking about ukraine and that was months ago and it's still going on um so it's it's very important that like voters do have a short attendance span and right now right on top of you know early voting is starting right early voting is starting and we know that the democrats are in a good place and that's very important um, and that's a it's a good thing for the Democrats that they were able to get these successes done strategically at the right time for voters to have remembered that. Again, who knows what's going to happen between now and then? Who knows what the actual impact is going to be? But it is, however, a pretty good thing. So moving on to our third segment, which we're going to do a little fast, is Mr. Dark Brandon. Joe Biden has come out absolutely swinging um, this summer, which is, you know, has a lot to do with the legislative successes within the Senate and the House, but also about his own communication strategy. So if you're not familiar with the Dark Brandon meme, Dark Brandon is Joe Biden's alter ego, um, who accepts just zero malarkey, like no malarkey at all. Um, that's the worst sentence I've ever said in my life. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, um, but Dark Branton has gone mainstream now, um, and the the executive branch is embracing Dark Branton. Everyone is embracing Dark Branton. So on top of the political maneuvering, um, he also recently made a speech in Philadelphia where he was basically speaking in front of like a red lit background, and he very severely called out Trumpism and called out fascism. Um, he basically said, "Hey, that's a bad thing. We shouldn't be doing that." Um, and of course, people had problems as they always do. He kind of that people claim that he was saying that all of his political opponents are fascists, which is, like, not true. But anyway. Um, and in my opinion, this is kind of the straight-up communication that he needs to do. The democracy vote, as I mentioned, is something that the, the Democrats are winning, and they need to continue winning. Um, so that means that Joe Biden does need to be calling out Republican fascism. He needs to remind the people, hey, this is not what we should want in our country. This is not a good thing. 
Um, and that's his role as leader of the country, of the free world, of the party, to kind of call out that hypocrisy um, and call out everything there that the Republicans are doing that they shouldn't be doing. And so again, and then he's also like his communication strategy on Twitter has changed so much. Um, and part of that is one of the former social media managers for the state of New Jersey has moved on to the West Wing, which is pretty exciting for me as a person from New Jersey and as a lover of Twitter. Um, so again, we've got all of that going on. There's been a complete about face in communication strategy, and there's been a complete about face in terms of actually seizing the legislative opportunities that are being provided to the Democrats. That's big. Um, so the Democrats have gained really good traction this summer, and it's a very simple combination of good communication and good things to communicate about, right? Even if they changed their communication strategy, but they didn't have anything to talk about, wouldn't be that successful. But the Democrats, again, I've meant, I said this before, but the Democrats are very good at rolling over and playing dead, but they're fighting to the finish line here, which is big, and I don't think it was necessarily something that the Republicans were expecting. So, that is everything that you, not everything, but most of the things that you missed in the last four months of American politics. So, now we've got all of that covered. What are we looking at moving forwards for the next couple of months? Number one, as I mentioned, conversation about federal funding process. We're going to be talking about that all the time. Um, of course, with October recess and everything else, it's going to be a very long process, but we're probably going to talk about that more next week, get more into it in the future. Um, of course, there's going to be all, everything that happens in Congress um, in September and then following October recess, everything that happens during that lame duck session um, in November and December. That's going to be pretty important, kind of watching how all of those political dynamics shift and change with how um, Congress is changing following the midterm elections. Um, different new leadership, new committee changes, new strategies from both caucuses. We're going to get into a lot of that as well. And then, of course, it is T-minus 47 days to midterms. 47 days until midterms. So that is indeed all we're going to be talking about for the next 47 days. We've got like a couple more weeks until then. Um, of course, this show is on Wednesday morning, which means I will have a show the day after Election Day. So that's going to be a fun one. Tune in for that one. Um, but that's really we're going to be we're going to be really digging into that, talking about all of those important races, how things are changing, how the dynamics are shifting, um, what it means for the future of Congress, what it means for the future of campaigning, all of that kind of stuff we are going to get into over the next couple of months. But that is a little bit of a look ahead. And now, last but not least, we're going to be talking about two of my favorite stories from this summer. Absolute favorite. Laughing, laughing, laughing. Having such a great time. Number one, we talked about the Donald Trump endorsements and how important those were to uh, this primary cycle. But in the Missouri Senate primary, the Republican Senate primary, there were numerous candidates that were vying for the Trump endorsement. And there was a lot of different Trump allies who were kind of trying to push him one direction or the other, trying to get him to support one candidate or another. 
So Donald Trump decided, after kind of looking at all the evidence, looking at all of the information that he had available to him, he decided to endorse Eric. Now that sounds all well and good. Except for when you realize that there were multiple candidates named Eric in the Missouri Republican primary. The man couldn't decide who to endorse, so he just endorsed everyone. What? What? How does he get away with that? Oh my gosh. Anyway, I love that. I need a laugh track in here. I need a laugh track for myself. Anyway, whatever. And then the next great story, not great, I mean it has to do with death, but it makes me laugh. It probably shouldn't. Is this bad? Am I a bad person? Anyway, so Donald Trump's first wife, Ivana, died over the summer. Um, and first of all, she died of blunt force trauma from falling down the stairs, which like seems suspicious to me, but that's fine. But then it was uncovered that Ivana was buried on Donald Trump's golf course in New Jersey, like on the golf course. And then if we find out that he was buried on the, that she was buried on the golf course for tax breaks, because now it's considered like a burial site so that now they don't have to pay like lots of different types of taxes in New Jersey on the golf course. Ivana was buried on a golf course for tax breaks. What? What? Anyway, I also need it. Again, I need a laugh track. I'm going to make a laugh track for myself. But that was it. That's all I had for today with still like one minute to spare. Pretty good. Um, so anyway, this has been Sheep Thrills. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. If you want to interact with the show, you can follow on Twitter at SheepThrillsGW, um, or you can follow on Instagram at SheepThrillsRadio. Um, I post the Spotify link to the show if you're interested in listening back to what I was talking about. Um, and I'll also try to post some of my sources um, somewhere as well. So you can follow on social media. Get involved, interact with me, send me a DM if you want to fight with me. Just be nice, I guess. Um, But with all that being said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a lovely rest of your day and a lovely rest of your week. Um, And I will see you guys next week for another delightful analysis of politics in the dear old US of A. With all that being said, have a great week and I will talk to you later.